You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In the business world, one of the best ways to sell a product is by offering a guarantee. We want to have a high degree of confidence that whatever items we purchase will perform as advertised. And to give us this confidence that the purchase will be a good one, that the purchase will be worth it, companies provide guarantees. Now, Stanley Steamer offers a clean guarantee on their carpet services. Fidelity offers a protection guarantee for the assets that are entrusted to them. And George Zimmer of Men's Warehouse tells his customers, you're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. You see, these companies put themselves on the hook for delivering on what they promised. They take responsibility to back up their promise. And generally speaking, a company will only offer a guarantee if they have a high degree of confidence in the quality of their product. And a good guarantee, check it out, takes effect not only when the company is at fault for some defect in services or product, a good guarantee takes effect even when the customer is at fault for some defect in the product or services. We love a good guarantee. And in the business world, guarantees are not that hard to find. But when it comes to faith, spirituality, and worldview, guarantees are hard to find. And in most instances, we're given promises, but there are no guarantees. Secularism promises never-ending social progress, but there are no guarantees. New Age spirituality promises spiritual guidance through crystals and astrology, but there are no guarantees. And world religions promise the good life, but there are no guarantees for user error. These worldviews make promises, but there are no real guarantees because it's up to you to properly maintain. It's up to you to perform the proper rites and to sustain sufficient devotion. And here's the sad irony. The spiritual sphere is where we most long for guarantees. And yet the spiritual sphere is where guarantees are in shortest supply. And that's what makes our passage for today so significant. In this passage, the God of the Bible not only reaffirms his grand promises to Father Abraham, but he also gives him a guarantee that those promises will be fulfilled. The Lord has such confidence in the quality of what he has offered to his people that he issues a guarantee. And what we learn is that the Lord's guarantee is a good guarantee because it not only is offered in the event that God should be at fault for some break in the covenant, it's also in effect if the people should be guilty 
of bringing some defect or fault into the relationship. So today, we're going to explore this text through two points. And it brings us right to the center of the Christian faith. And it beautifully commends the Christian faith to us. If you're in here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure where you are, and you're wondering, why should I even give Christianity a second thought? Why should I take it seriously? I would propose to you today that what's in this text gives you a clear answer. God makes promises, and he guarantees those promises like no one and no other worldview can. That's why we are glad to commend to you the Christian faith. So follow with me, if you would, to see how this develops in Genesis chapter 15 for today. We're going to hit it through two points as we consider the essence of faith and the assurance of faith. The essence of faith and the assurance of faith. So let's begin with our first point where we see the essence of faith. If you weren't with us last week, we began our new series called The Gospel According to Genesis. And we began, we're, we're walking through what are known as the patriarchal narratives, which is Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50. And this is where we get a new beginning after the ruin that was introduced into the world by the fall. In Genesis chapters 3 through 11, we rehearsed the fact that the world goes into a tailspin, a downward spiral as a result of the fall. Sin escalates, and so does judgment and so does hopelessness. But just like God said, let there be light in Genesis 1, so God calls Abraham, calls a new people in Genesis chapter 12. And God makes these wonderful, these massive, these mind-blowing promises to Abram. But as we get to chapter 15, we have to appreciate the fact that years have passed since God made the promise, and yet the promise has not yet been fulfilled. By some Bible scholars, they reckon that there has been a passage of 10 years between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. You see, the, the chapters are short, but the years were long. The chapters are short for us. It's just a few pages. But the years were long for Abram. And based upon the nature of the promises, we can understand why he, he was aching for the fulfillment. He was longing for God to make good on what he promised. And in this passage, there are two primary questions that are being developed for us. Two primary questions. The first is this. Can Abram trust? And the second is, can the Lord be trusted? Can Abram trust? And can the Lord be trusted? And we get answers to both of these questions as the passage develops. Because, you see, God had made these massive promises to Abram, but he didn't give Abram a timeline. And he didn't tell him how exactly the fulfillment of these promises would take place. He didn't know how it would play out. And by the time we get to this, this passage, he's been waiting for the promise, and this waiting has turned to frustration and, and discouragement, and his hope is teetering. But the Lord, knowing what's going on in Abram's heart, speaks to him. Look at verse 1. The Lord prompts Abram into a dialogue. And before Abram's concerns are expressed, the Lord gives him a word of comfort. Here's why. If you're wondering what's going on with the Lord just popping up out of the blue and saying, 
Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. All you have to do is read back in chapter 14 for the context. In the context, Abram's nephew Lot, they had decided uh, that they were going to divvy up land. And Abram gave Lot the first choice. Lot chose this land over here. It looked really good. And Abram was left with this land over here. It didn't look great. Well, while Lot was over here, there were these kings that went to war with the people of his place. And Lot got caught up into the war and he was kidnapped. And what Abram does is he gathers up his whole household and Abram rides out to war. He puts himself at risk in order to bring Lot home. And after Abram wins the war and frees not only Lot, but all the people he was with, the king of Sodom offers these, these spoils to Abram. And Abram says, no, I'm not going to take it because I don't want you to be in a place where you can say, I made Abraham rich. The Lord's going to take care of me. And so that's where we immediately get to chapter 15. And the Lord says, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. If you're worried about any, any kickback on you, I'm your defender. And your reward will be great. You don't need the spoils of those kings. I, your reward will be great. This is the assurance that the Lord had given Abram. And notice in the text that anytime God's people put themselves at risk for the benefit of others, God always says, you had them and I got you. That's no less true today. When you put yourself at risk for other people, the Lord says, you got them, I got you. You get the better end of the deal. And, and once God initiates the dialogue, look at what Abram does. Abram addresses himself to the Lord in lament. Do you see it in the text? It's been 10 long years and his concerns have grown. But he doesn't try to pretend before the Lord that everything is okay in his heart. He brings his questions. He brings his concerns, his anxieties, and his restless heart to the Lord. He essentially says, Lord, I hear you promising to defend me and provide for me, but I'm still waiting on you to deliver on your promises from 10 years ago. And that's nice. I'm really glad. I'm grateful that you are promising to defend me and, and, and that my reward will be great. But I've been waiting 10 years. It's been a decade, Lord. And all I have are the promises and no fulfillment. He didn't turn to his favorite author. He didn't check in with his favorite theologian or media personality. There was no intermediary. He does direct communion with the Lord. He lays his grievance upon the Lord. And in response, the Lord doesn't say in response to Abram's lament, how dare you question me? I'm God. He just reaffirms the promise and takes it a step further. Do you, do you see the, the, the fatherly kindness of God? The Lord says, listen, listen, listen. Don't get it twisted. This man who you have identified, your servant, Eliezer, he's not going to be your heir. And in the Hebrew text, it is very direct. It says, one from your own belly. One from your own body will be your heir. I'm not mincing words here, Abram. I'm not talking about parlor tricks, Abram. Yes, you're old, and I'm going to take your old body and do a new thing to show you that my promises are reliable. Trust me. God's response to Abram is to rehearse his promises with him to grow his faith. 
Like a patient father, the Lord begins to reaffirm for Abram what he has planned for him. And he confirms once again what he already told Abram he would do. Essentially, this is what's happening. Abram's like, are you sure? And the Lord says, I'm sure. Another way to see what's happening there is something akin to when we go on a road trip, 10 minutes into the road trip. Daddy, are we there yet? No. Five minutes later. Are we there yet? No. 15 minutes later. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. Ask me one more time, I'm going to drop you off, right? No. But <laughs> notice the patience of the Lord. He allows him to keep saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? He's like, no, be patient. I'm with you. No, the promises are still real. No, I'm going to deliver for you. The Lord is generous and gracious like a father. And you just think about how little patience we have for our kids' repeated questions of the same nature and marvel in the patience of God with us. Marvel in it. Growth isn't a sprint, y'all. It's, it's a marathon with winding pathways and rough terrain. And God doesn't work transformation in us in one fell swoop. It is by, listen, it's by repeated exposure to God's word, repeated exposure to trials, and repeated rehearsal of God's promises that we really grow in faith. Repeated exposure to God's word, repeated exposure to trials, and repeated rehearsal of God's promises. That's the way our faith grows. That's how the Lord grows us. And this is what we're seeing in Abram. Just like the painter achieves her masterpiece through many brushstrokes, and the sculptor achieves his final piece of art, the, 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 the final product, by many swings of the hammer, so God does his creative, renewing work in our lives through many different occasions, situations, and frustrations in life. Those are the ways that he does this work. And this text invites patience with others and patience with yourself in the waiting. Now, after this initial part of the text, in verse 5, take a look. The Lord reinforces his message by giving Abram an object lesson. The Lord brings Abram outside and tells him, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And then in verse 6, the narrator gives us one line of commentary on the interaction between the Lord and Abram. And it gives us the essence of faith. If you want to know what faith is from the Christian framework, this is the essence of faith. And I think it's really important in a day where many different people talk about faith or spirituality. It's important that we get clear contours, sharp distinctions as to what we mean as Christians when we talk about faith and what the Bible means when it talks about faith. Look, look, at, look at what verse 6 says. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord. What is the essence of faith? Believing the Lord. I regularly talk to any number of people who say, I believe in God. What they mean is that I believe God exists. 
Now, whether or not they take any action to integrate that belief into their lives, who knows? Whether or not it makes any difference in their decision-making or in their relationships, who knows? But what we see in this text is so much more than the regular phrase, I believe in God. Abram doesn't just believe that the Lord exists. He believes the Lord. He comes to trust the truth of the Lord more than the lies in his head. That is faith. He comes to trust the knowledge of the Lord more than his own intellect. That is faith. He comes to trust the wisdom of the Lord more than his own plans and schemes. That is faith. He comes to trust the sovereignty of the Lord more than his own ability to manipulate outcomes. That is faith. Abraham wants to believe everything that the Lord says. He wants to receive everything that the Lord gives. He wants to perceive everything that the Lord teaches. And he wants to retrieve everything that the enemy stole. This is faith. Faith doesn't remove all of Abram's questions. It removes all of his false securities. On this journey of faith, Abram is learning to entrust his life his future, his hopes, and his longings to the God who can secure them. Faith is the realization that all of our self-securing, all of our self-protective measures are no more robust than the, the performative actions of a mall cop. That's your capability of defending and securing your own life. You are the mall cop. But the protective and securing measures of the Lord are greater than the combined forces of the DOD, the FBI, the CIA, and the Secret Service. He is able to secure you in ways you can never secure yourself. To put it simply, I want you to understand this. Abram is called the father of faith. Abram becomes the father of faith because he rested his faith in the father. That's why he becomes the father of faith. That's what he's growing to understand and practice over his life. Because you can see through the narrative, he didn't arrive at this early. And there were many failures and many bumps in the road, many mistakes in Abram's journey. But... What we learn from the whole corpus of scripture, particularly by the writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, is that the life of Abram was characterized by this essential faith. What characterized the life of Abram? He believed the Lord. The invitation to you and I is to believe the Lord like Abram. But that's not all that the passage says. Keep looking at it. It says, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now listen, this passage tells us that Abram was declared relationally right with God. Not because of his trying, but because of his trusting. Not because of his achieving, but simply through his believing. He looked at God, deemed him trustworthy, and staked his life on it. That's, that's faith. That's faith. God, listen, newsflash. God doesn't need your contributions. 
The only thing that we contribute to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. And what does that mean? What does this teach us about true saving faith? I want you to get this. I'm going to give you a little theology this morning, but you need to get this because this is theology that walks in life. Here's the theological paradigm. What you need to understand about true saving faith is that true saving faith is simultaneously active and non-contributory. True saving faith, I'm going to say again, is simultaneously, at the same time, it is active, but that activity is not a contribution. It's non-contributory. Faith is non-contributory. Faith is the open mouth that wants to be fed. Faith is the open hand that needs to be filled. Faith is simultaneously active, but it's non-contributory. Faith really does act. Faith energizes new life and new practices. But those actions, those energies, those, those actions and practices make no contribution to our salvation. Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now here's the thing. I want to I get it down on the ground for us today. You know, our problem is not so much that the Lord can't be trusted. In fact, it's not that at all. The problem is not that God can't be trusted. The problem is that we refuse to distrust ourselves. Let that digest. The problem isn't that God cannot be trusted. He's proven that over the ages for every people group on the planet. There is not one ethnic or socioeconomic breakdown in this world, not one age demographic in this world following Jesus that cannot testify to the fact that he is trustworthy. The problem for us is we refuse to distrust ourselves. Check it out. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve refused to distrust themselves. And they plunged the whole world into ruin and curse. We refuse to distrust our interpretation of things. And it damages our relationship to God and neighbor. We refuse to distrust our intellectual abilities. And it cultivates a malignant pride and insecurity. We refuse to distrust our emotions, especially our strong emotions. And we become weather vanes, blown around by the circumstances of life and the shifting axioms of our culture. And the result of trusting ourselves, what is it? We're not curious. We're not curious about the Lord. We're not curious about other people. We assume we know. We're not joyful. We're not secure. And we're not connected. But the Lord's answer to the self-trust of Genesis 3 is the creation of a new believing people, beginning with chapter 12, but ratified in chapter 15. And notice, I think this is important too, notice based upon the placement of verse chapter 6, that true faith is not incompatible with lament. True faith is not incompatible with questions. True faith holds together as it seeks understanding on the things that it doesn't know. And true faith brings lament to the Lord where there are truly lamentable realities, where things are not what they were intended to be. God welcomes that. And that is not an indication of weak faith. It's actually an indication of real faith. 
But even after this amazing statement of Abram's righteousness by faith, there is a most important question that he asks. Did you catch it? Look at the text. Put your eyes on the text. Do you notice that most important question that Abram asks? Verse 8. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? You see this? This is a question of what we call epistemology. How do you know what you know? Abram is asking the Lord, how can I know that you will deliver on your promises? Lord, where is the guarantee? You see, I, the way I work, Lord, I, I usually don't deal with stuff unless I get a guarantee. And the Lord says, you want a guarantee? I got you, Abram. And that brings us into the next part of our passage in our next point, which is the assurance of faith. The essence of faith is believing the Lord. It's not propositional, it's personal. I should say it's not merely propositional. It's not just ideas that we believe about God. The essence of faith is believing God himself. It's point. And if you look at what's happening here, as we get further into the text, a strange scene begins to unfold for us. It's so strange for us as 21st century readers. This strange scene begins to develop. And, and, and what was interesting is we can see that it was clearly familiar to Abram. Mm -hmm. God says, you want assurance? You want me to tell you how you know? Abram, you want me to get your epistemology together? Okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to gather some animals. And already, as soon as the Lord started describing what he wanted Abram to do, Abram was like, ah, I see what you're doing. Because essentially, what's happening in this passage is an ancient version of, of something that happens in our culture every day. You see, every day, many of you have had this experience. Maybe it was when you went to buy a house. And you know, it's all fun and games when you're looking at bedrooms and bathrooms and imagining what the yard could be like and all that. But then it gets down to business. And you sit down and they put a stack of paperwork in front of you like that. And in this paperwork, it lists the parties of the agreement. And then it has stipulations for how that agreement is to be negotiated. And once the two parties agree on the terms of the contract, what do they do? They sign their name. Yeah. And when what happens is each party signs their name, and now we have a binding agreement. And in the binding agreement, it tells you what each party deserves in the keeping of the contract, but it also lays out penalties if you break the contract. Right. Penalties for each as they break the contract. Now, what is happening in this passage? It is the ancient version of this everyday practice in our culture. A covenant, an agreement, a contract is being made here. Now, what the standard practice was, and this was, this was serious business, right? Because what they would do is they would take these animals, and they would cut some of them in half, and they would take their parts, and they would create an aisle, just like the aisle in this church right here. Imagine the beginning of each pew is a different animal that's been cut in half. And what would happen is that the two parties of the agreement, of the covenant, would walk through those pieces together, 
Now you might be like, that sounds really strange. <laughs> but it's not as strange as you think, because what they were enacting were the penalties for breaking the agreement. Yeah, right. What they were saying is, as we walk through these pieces, if I should break my end of the bargain, if I should fall through on my side of the deal, let me be like these cut pieces. Let me face the judgment of death for not upholding my end of the bargain. He might be like, that's intense. Engineering some people didn't play. But, but that's not so foreign to us. How many of you were kids when you said, how many of you, when you were kids, said something like this to a friend? It's like, hey, give me some candy. If I give you some candy, you gonna let me play your video game? Yeah, I'll let you. You promise? Yeah. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my mouth. That sounds like Genesis 15 to me. I'm talking about stabbing people in the eyes with needles and stuff, right? Like, we have our version. The more solemn the consequences for breaking the covenant, the more serious the covenant is. The more serious the agreement. And that is what is happening here. Abraham knows exactly what's about to go down. They were about to make a covenant. So Abram cuts the pieces up. He makes the eye. And what Abram is expecting, check this out, what Abram is expecting is that he and the Lord will walk down the aisle together. But that's not what happens in the text. Look at what happens in the text. The Lord puts Abram to sleep. That's right. Yeah. And this heavy darkness descends on Abram. Now, what I need you to understand is this. What's happening in the language of this text, going you know, through this section, is that all, if you were reading it in Hebrew, all of these different allusions are popping off to the Exodus, to Mount Sinai. In the sleep, in the dark dread of the darkness, he beholds a fire pot and this smoking cloud kind of thing, right? You know what that should remind you of? The pillar of fire and the cloud in the Exodus. You, you, you know that, that Leonardo DiCaprio meme? Israel, as they read this the first time, they were going, We know that. That's what we, that's what stood in between us when Egypt was coming to kill us. It's the same presence. And you know what? We're, the Old Testament scholars say what we're supposed to picture. Picture the, the column of fire and the column of smoke. Supposed to be depicting the legs of God. So, when you go back to the Exodus... It's not just random smoke in, in a pillar of fire to say the Lord is standing between his people and their enemy. When they go through the Red Sea, it's the Lord walking through with them, behind them, making sure Egypt can't take them out on the way through. And guess what's happening in Genesis 15? It is the Lord alone who walks through the pieces. Do you understand what's happening here? This is what's happening here. It's like God is saying, you just rest and look at my guarantee. I'm walking through on my own, Abram, which is to say, I am not only going to take responsibility for my side of the covenant. 
covenant, my side of the agreement. I'm going to take responsibility in, for your side of the covenant. And in the event that I should break the covenant, let me be cut to pieces in death like these animals. But not only that, if you should be unfaithful to this covenant, let me be cut to pieces in death for your failure, Abram. The certainty of these promises and this relationship is going to rest upon my covenant faithfulness, not yours, Abram. Let me be like these pieces should I break this covenant. And listen, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. If you want to know what the Christian faith is all about, if you want to know why we make a big deal about Jesus, if you want to know why we hold out Jesus as the exclusive Savior of the world, this is why. Because here's the good news, my friends. God walks the aisle alone for both of them. God says, let me be torn to pieces in death if I should break my covenant. And let me be torn to pieces in death if you should break this covenant. Let me be struck down for any violation of this agreement. And many years later, yeah. darkness yeah. would fall again. But it wasn't darkness that fell over a nomad in the middle of nowhere, ancient Near East. It was darkness that fell over the land of Jerusalem. It was a darkness that fell as God's people were in dreadful darkness, as the people were asleep. When the promised son of Abram, Jesus Christ, guaranteed the certain fulfillment of God's promise. You see, God maintained covenant fidelity on his side over the ages. But God's people broke that covenant time and time again over the ages. And it, 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 it seemed that after centuries of covenant breaking, that there was no hope of preparing this covenant, no hope of receiving these promises, no hope of inheriting all the goodness that the Lord had committed to his people. Yet, after centuries of covenant breaking, when it seemed there was no hope of repair, God stepped up to fulfill our covenantal responsibility and to absorb our covenant penalty. God was, God's guarantee was a good guarantee, y'all. You know why? Because it not only made allowances for any uh, fault on the Lord's side of the covenant, it also made allowances for fault on our side of the covenant. That's how we know it's a guarantee. It's a good guarantee. The Son of God himself was torn to pieces in death, cut down in covenantal judgment because of your infidelity and my infidelity. This is why there's no room for pride for anybody who claims to believe in Jesus. Where is your pride? This is how jacked up you were. This is how needy you were. This was how incapable of fixing things you were. This is how bad you messed it up. This is how deeply you betrayed the covenant. That is true of every Christian in this room. There is no room for pride. 
But you know what? There's also no room for fear because how much must God love you to send his son to fulfill the end of the covenant that you should have been fulfilling and I should have been fulfilling. And yet he loves you to the degree that he would plumb the depths of the brokenness of this world and he would take up responsibilities that did not belong to him so that he could bring us home to the love of God. Do you see the essence of faith has clarified. Abraham believed the Lord. Today, we believe the Lord Jesus. That is the essence of faith. Believing the Lord Jesus. Everything that he said, everything that he promised, every truth that he offers, every calling that he issues, we believe the Lord. He said he is going to raise us. We believe it. He said that we are headed for glory. We believe it. He said he will never leave us nor forsake us. We believe it. He said he will be at work in our mission. We believe it. Everything that he says, we believe the Lord. The essence of faith has clarified, but also the assurance of faith has clarified. Abraham got the guarantee of the Lord through the split pieces of animal. But our assurance is the cross. How can you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will do what he promised? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Because listen, it's at the cross that we get the clean guarantee that Stanley Steamer could never touch because it removes stains of the heart. It's at the cross that we get a protection guarantee that fidelity could never dream of offering. And the Lord tells you that once he completes his transforming work in your life and brings you into the glorious image of Christ, you're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Guaranteed by his life. Guaranteed by his faithfulness. Guaranteed by his death and sufferings. Guaranteed by his resurrection. Guaranteed by his ascension. Guaranteed by his kingly rule. He will make good on his promises. How do you know? He proved it at the cross. So what do we do with this? Two applications. First one is this. Practice believing the Lord. Practice believing the Lord. How do I practice believing the Lord? You, I want to invite you to practice believing the Lord by doubting your doubts. If you applied as much scrutiny to your doubts as you applied to the scriptures, you might find that many of your doubts just simply don't hold up to scrutiny. And there's no legitimate logical thing but to trust him. But we don't apply enough scrutiny to our doubts. Upon what grounds can you suspect the Lord of wrongdoing or not thinking about you? Or on what grounds can you conclude that the Lord has forgotten you? That he, that he just wants to make you suffer with no purpose. Right? All of these things that go through our heads, ways that we are suspicious of the Lord, doubt your doubts. And that will help you more and more to grow in believing the Lord. Doubt your doubts. Don't discount him. Don't discount his words. And also, get rid of the yeah buts. Okay? This is what often happens in Christian community. Okay? 
If you're going through a thing, let's just say you're struggling to make ends meet. And you have a friend who comes up to you and says, you know what, the Lord has promised to provide for you. And you say, yeah, but. You know what you're doing right there? You're discounting the promises of God. Literally discounting. You're not counting the promises of God in your moral logic, in your mental you know, processing of reality. Don't discount the Lord. Count the Lord. Doubt your doubts. Know the evidence. Um, I just think it's reasonable. Like, how many of you have said sometime in this past year, like, I just want to have a voice? Well, it's reasonable for you to want to have a voice in things in this world. It's reasonable for God to want to have a voice with you. you want to have a voice in your, in your heart. First thing, practice believing the Lord by doubting your doubts. Second We've talked about practicing the presence of God, Brother Lawrence, right? That's Brother Lawrence. He has a book called Practicing the Presence of God. What I want to suggest to you is that we also need to practice the promises of God. Practice the promises of God. What's that sound like? Okay, it sounds like this. I'm experiencing these circumstances. But God promised these things. And I'm going to, I'm going to make moves and make decisions with confidence that those promises will be fulfilled in his time, the right time, in the right way for the right reasons. That's practicing the promises. Every time you have a choice between living into promises and living into something else, you choose to live in the promises because that's faith. It's been said by the church over the ages that Christians are not a people of the eye, we're a people of the ear. What have we heard of the Lord, even when our eyes see things that frighten us, that confuse us, that don't seem to accord with what God has said? We are a people of the ear. He said it. He's trustworthy. He's proven it. He's given us the guarantee of the cross. Rehearse God's promises. Here's how you do it. How do you practice the promises? First, you got to know God's promises. You got to know what God does promise, and you got to know what God didn't promise. And don't be mad at God because he hasn't given you something he never promised to give you. Sometimes we count as promises things that God never promised, right? He didn't promise an easy life. He didn't promise smooth sailing. He said, in this world, you'll have trouble. He didn't promise that. But he said, take heart, I've overcome the world. So, know the promises of God. If you don't know them, this is a good week to create a collection of them. Do a little research. Second, rehearse God's promises. When you are fighting off fears and, and insecurities, let those promises run through your mind. Bring them back, whether that's through music or through community, conversations, whatever. Third, believe God's promises. And if you do these things, it will be counted to you as righteousness. That's what it looks like to know God, to walk with him, and to grow in him. Believe him. Trust his promises. Look to his guarantee at the cross. And know that you are counted as righteous by that faith alone in Christ's name. Amen. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.